In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity. To another week on the Catholic Toolbox, the Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manasseh, here as we compute with practical tools to live your Catholic faith in our modern world of today and to take action. And this week, we're going into a deep theological topic, something very important uh, regarding our Lord. And we're specifically looking at whether or not our Lord Jesus Christ knew he was God. And how we can take some of that and the implications it might have for our spiritual life into our day-to-day life. So if you want to follow us here on the Catholic Toolbox, don't forget to subscribe by going to thecatholictoolboxshow.com. That is thecatholictoolboxshow.com. And we welcome aboard Dr. Robert Haddad. Welcome aboard. Yeah, thank you, George. Thanks for having me again. It's always an honour to be on your programme. Well, it's always an honour to have you here and uh, enlightening us with your wisdom and... Uh, especially in these uh, troubled times that we live in. Uh, We most definitely need uh, the light of Christ and especially to understand who he was and to go into the deep Christology. And uh, I'm very excited about today. So let's get started about what, uh, you know, about the whole whole Christological topic or did Jesus know he was God? I mean, it's easy to really focus in sometimes on his human nature and not looking at his divine nature and both wills as well. But let's uh, let's get started here today. Um, so we'll have to go in here and see, uh, is Jesus God? What are the scriptural references that support Jesus was actually God uh, to start with? I think that's the foundation. Well, yeah, that, that's a fundamental question. Um, and there are quite a few scripture verses in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And I've got three I could draw from. Um, in the Old Testament, we have the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6, who says the following. For us, a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So this messianic figure that's to come sometime in the future, here Isaiah in the 7th century BC is telling us that he's going to be mighty God. Then I've got two quotes from the Gospel of John. The beginning of John's Gospel is very well known, very famous. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then we have in verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's 
the beginning of the prologue of John's gospel. Near the end of John's gospel, we have the <clears throat> apostle St. Thomas falling on his knees before our Lord after his resurrection and saying to him, my Lord and my God. There are three examples. There are other quotes I could refer to, some Paul here and there, etc. But I think that's sufficient for our purposes at the moment. Exactly. So it's very evident that our Lord Jesus Christ is God. And, and I think we can move on now to a more important aspect, and that is the arguments for Jesus not knowing that he was God. What are, what are some arguments? I've never actually heard any. This is, this is actually very new for me. What are the, the arguments against yes. Jesus not knowing he was God? That's, that, that's such I, a revelation for me. Yeah, I, I've, I've been hearing this since the early 90s, and I, when I first heard it, I'm staggered. And I once had a friend of mine who related a, a story to me where, you know, in the 60s when this type of new theology was coming forth, one Marist father who was Orthodox Catholic said, you know, if I was God, I think I'd know I was God. So you just wonder why is this question even being asked? And I had an unfortunate incident um, over 10 years ago when I was doing professional development for people who were training or who were teachers actually um, I was an invited guest to an event and and it was on Christology and I just unpacked what the church understands about Jesus Christ and at the end of this seminar which was to 60 professionals the host of the of the event just said, well, I just want to say publicly that I have to disagree with what Robert Haddad said about Jesus. If Jesus knew he was God, that undermines his humanity. And I just was staggered when I heard that. I just looked like left and right and thinking, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. How does he, being one divine person with the divine will and the divine intellect, firstly not know that he is God, and if he did know, how does that impact on his human nature that he assumed? And well, anyway, to answer your question directly, the argument is in appears in different forms. And actually, to be more precise, most of the people who say that Jesus didn't know he was God don't actually put it out that bluntly. They say that in his humanity. Over time, he came to the realisation that he was God. So here's oh, yeah. two quotes I've got off the internet from the, this, these new theologians, so to speak. Did Jesus always know he was God? When did Jesus know he was God? And now I'm going to read out a, a paragraph, which, which is a bit lengthy, but summarises comprehensively their line of thinking. Quote, this progression toward full awareness of the self goes on for many years and is always of need of more clarity. So that's valid for us as ordinary human beings. You know, when, when I'm six months uh, old, I don't know myself and the world around me. I gradually grow into a greater awareness of the world around me and myself. Um, the, the quote goes on to say, we are always a work in progress, as they say. The human side of Jesus, if we really believe he was true man, would have gone through these stages of self-awareness. Just when he had full knowledge of his divinity, we cannot know for sure. Most probably by the time of his baptism by John the Baptist, 
since his divine nature was revealed by the voice from heaven, proclaiming him to be the son of God. So most people who advocate Jesus didn't know he was God actually are telling us more precisely that he didn't always know he was God. He came to a gradual realization, but no one can tell us exactly when that realization was fully realized, so to speak. It's very interesting because <laughs> what is the scriptural, I have a very interesting question, which is what is the scriptural support for Jesus knowing that he was God? Uh, I think it's it's there clearly. Now, firstly, I discount this line of argument that I've just outlined because I, it's not applicable to Jesus Christ as God and man. It might be an argument, certainly an argument applicable to us as human beings about growing self-realization. But Jesus is in a different category altogether because he's not a human person. He is a divine person. But to answer your question, uh, I've extracted a number of verses that clearly show that at least uh, in, a, in his, clearly in his adulthood, he knew he was God. We go to John 8, 58, where he said, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, when his audience heard this, they were in a rage and they picked up stones to stone him for blasphemy because you, that is Jesus, uh, you being a man, make yourself God. Jesus did not say before Abraham was, I was. Jesus wasn't simply saying he pre-existed Abraham. He assumed the divine name, the name that Yahweh gave of himself to Moses, Esha Aya Esha. I am who am, and some, that's uh, summarized as I am. So Jesus called himself the I am, identified himself as God. And later on, Jesus would say, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And again, that was understood in a divine sense. And then later on in his priestly prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says the following, recorded in John 17, 5, and when he prayed, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. So Jesus is declaring there to the world at large that um, he had a glory before coming into this world, a glory uh, uh, with the Father. So he's stating there that he has an equality with the Father in heaven before he came uh, onto earth and look surely if he if he does contain i mean logically any kind of divinity wouldn't he if he was god or or if you're gonna pre presuppose that uh, and to go with the argument would, would a common sense dictate that if he was god uh from the beginning then he knew from the beginning Yes, we'll Otherwise, see. We're going to deification, possibly. Yeah, you're, you're thinking logically here, just embracing Catholic dogma about Jesus being true God, and you come into an instant conclusion which is entirely reasonable. What the, the advocates of this argument that Jesus didn't know he was God or only came to a gradual realization he was that he was God are either denying the hypostatic union, and we'll go into that in a moment, 
or they're placing some artificial barrier between Jesus's divinity and his humanity, which somehow prevented Jesus's humanity being aware of his own divinity. Or they could be going into Nestorianism, which is dividing Jesus into two persons, a divine person and a human person. And somehow there was some barrier there that was only gradually breached over time in which the human person of Jesus came to realize that he was also a divine person. Now, there's a whole lot of heresies here. And what we need to do is unpack how the church has come to understand Jesus and related that to us. And that took centuries from the Council of Nicaea in AD 325, first Nicaea, right through to third Constantinople in AD 680. That 355-year period is the period of the theological and Christological controversy. And it was the church under the influence of the Holy Spirit inspiration of the Holy Spirit that came to determine these issues for us. So we can go to Mass and say the Nicene-Constantinople Creed in just a matter of about one minute, which is a summary of 355 years of controversy. Exactly. I mean, I still go back to the common sense and the logic that if Jesus is God, is God, then how can he not know from the beginning? That's right. He and it's, it's simple. And sometimes this, it's a simple faith of the people that will more preserve the faith than the so-called intellectuals and academics and philosophers and theologians and etc. In, the, in their ivory towers who probably think too much and, and split too many hairs and create too much confusion. But again, we, there's no room for confusion here if we are faithful and embrace what the church has taught in the councils. And if you give me a few minutes, I can summarize very briefly the, how the councils put this great puzzle together. Okay, we know with Nicaea one and Constantinople one, that those two councils affirmed the divinity of Christ, God from God, like from like, true God from true God. And that were the first two ecumenical councils for yes. the listening in. in the fourth century. Yeah. Then we have the Council of Ephesus in AD 431, and we had this character named Nestorius, who was Patriarch of Constantinople, a very significant figure. He objected to the term Theotokos, or God-bearer. He said that Mary can't be called God-bearer. She can be called Christotokos, Christ-bearer. He taught that in Jesus in Mary's womb was just human. But as he came forth from Mary's womb, he was enveloped by the divinity. So in the story of this problem is that he saw Jesus as two persons, a human person and a divine person. The church declared at the Council of Ephesus, no, Jesus is only one person, one person in the womb of Mary and the same person outside the womb of Mary, a divine person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, the word of God, the word made flesh. So Jesus, when you say, did Jesus know he was God? And you're saying, well, if he was God, of course he'll know he was God. And the answer to that is, cor is correct, because Jesus is only one person. He's not two persons. So he, being only one person, a divine person, of course Jesus knew he was God, always knew he was God, never came to a gradual realization that he was God. And 
Okay, so if he's one divine person, what about his human nature, though? And then we have Chalcedon in AD 451, 20 years later, which determined that, yes, Jesus is one, one person, a divine person, but he has two natures, the divine nature and a human nature, while not becoming a second human person. This is the great mystery, the incarnation, the hypostatic union. Jesus, in a sense, clothes himself with a human nature. In addition to his divine nature, he assumes a human body, a human soul, a human intellect and a human will. But he's not, he doesn't become a second human person. He remains only one person. And his human nature is conditioned. Surely if he's God logic and the church's teaching would dictate that he's fully human fully divine so by what happens to his humanity would he yes. know from when he was young he was god yes. like even here, before the age here we have to um have to be careful here because chalcedon condemned the idea that jesus's divine nature and human natures somehow intermingle that that he had only one nature which was some intermingling of the two no, Chalcedon said he had two distinct natures, the divine and a tr truly divine and truly the divine nature and truly a human nature, which were not intermingled, but they were united. This is the hypostatic union, the union of the Jesus's human nature with his divine person, so that Jesus as a divine person, owned the divine nature and also owned the human nature. Jesus's human nature was not owned by another human person. It had to be entirely owned by the divine person of the word in order to give Jesus's merits on the cross infinite value. So when I look at Jesus and Third Council of Constantinople in 680 wrapped it all up for us, declared that he also has a true human intellect and a true human will in addition to the divine intellect and the divine will. So Jesus in the garden prays, let thy will be done, not mine. That's the human will of Jesus submitting to the divine will of the father. And Jesus has the, as a divine person has the same divine will. Um, and this is what, this is what is, not understood by some when with the hypostatic union there's such an intimate union with the human nature of jesus and the divine person to the extent that jesus's human soul in you in union with the divine person the word has vision has the vision of god has the beatific vision and that's from the moment of the incarnation. As soon as the Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of the Virgin Mary, Jesus's humanity, his human soul is, is united to the divine person and has the vision of God. So Jesus's human intellect doesn't come to some gradual realization that he is divine. He has that realization at the very instant the incarnation began. Uh, when the human soul of Jesus, being a creature, is united to his divine person. And that's what is missed by all these people who advocate uh, that Jesus gradually came to a realisation he was God. And this is a new theology that contradicts the universal 
uh, teaching of the scholastics of the Middle Ages. I have more confidence in the scholastics of the Middle Ages than I have in many of the modern theologians today. I mean, logic would dictate if he is God, we're going to acknowledge he's, he, he is fully human, fully divine. Then his divine nature, uh, he shares it with the Holy Trinity as the divine nature. Then his humanity surely would be conditioned by his divine nature. Is that the case? Yeah, well, when you say conditioned, I, I, you start with the word united, union. United. Hypostasis in Greek means person. Means the intellectual ability to know that he is God is conditioned yeah. by the fact that he is God. He has well, that ability that transcends us. And let's, let's develop this word condition. What does Jesus in his human intellect know because he's united to the divine person of the word? What is the knowledge of Jesus, his divine knowledge and his human knowledge? Because this is the debate. It's said that in his human knowledge, he doesn't know initially he's God. He came to that realisation gradually. But what, what is the knowledge of Christ? What knowledge does Christ possess in his divine and human intellects? That's the question we need to uh, understand. And the church here has a complete understanding. By the way, if you want further reading on this, if you're saying, well, where does Robert get this? Is Robert making this up? What's his reference? Some of us would know the great classic work, Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, by the German professor Ludwig Ott. Yes. Ludwig Ott. Right behind me, yeah. You, yeah. You've got it on your shelf. I've got it on my shelf. If you've noticed my eyes looking elsewhere, it's because I'm trying to find where I put the book. It could be right behind me. Give me a second. Um, it, no, it's not right behind me. It's, I think it's right in front of me. But pages 162 to 168 is what I've read recently to refresh myself. And it's, it's, it's a rigorous theological work. It's not something you can just pick up and well, read easily. There's a I lot of... Did read, did read, let me give everybody a heads up. I did read it. To, I actually, that was the greatest theological book that I had read through and studied in grade 10, in year 10. Yes. I, when I came back to the faith, I was reading through books, going through Perusia Media, going through information. But that when I was given that book by a good friend of mine, then Father Andrew Bass, uh, as a gift, I picked that up and that had the explanation for every dogmatic teaching of the church from yeah. scripture, from tradition, from everything. And even has Greek references. So if you want to look yeah. at your Greek Bible, it has Latin. And we'll show that after the break. Uh, I'll get it off my shelf and I'll, I'll yeah. show it. So that's a very good reference book. I highly recommend you get it by Dr. Ludwig Ott, Fundamentals yeah. of Catholic Dogma. It's a tan book. It's still being published. And yeah. as I said, if you're in year nine reading and listening to this program now, it's not the first book you would read. But if you're a university student and you're aspirant to know more about your faith and you want to be able to teach your faith with some precision, uh, yeah, it's, it's highly recommended. Okay, so we're up to the issue of what was the knowledge of Jesus? What knowledge did Jesus possess? All right, well, having the intellect, the divine intellect, Jesus is said to have comprehensive knowledge. That's a technical term. Comprehensive knowledge. What does comprehensive knowledge mean? 
It means that he has the knowledge of all things, past, present, and future, plus the infinite array of possibilities. That's infinite knowledge. So, for example, Jesus, from all in his human, inter, in his divine intellect, knew the future, knew the past, knew the present, knew that one day Hitler would come into the world and do all the evils that he performed. But he also knew what would have happened, what difference to world history would have occurred if Hitler actually died of those gas attacks in late 1918 and how world history would be different. He gives us an illustration of that when he speaks about, you know, if the miracles I did in, you know, Kavanaugh were done in it were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would be standing to today, right? That's an example of Jesus illustrating the a knowledge of a possibility. Okay, so that's infinite knowledge in the divine intellect, which is what we would expect of the divine intellect. Now, Jesus has a new human intellect. So what's the knowledge in his human intellect? We have to understand it's not the same as the knowledge in Jesus' divine intellect. Why? Because the human intellect is a human intellect. It is only a creature. So it can't have infinite capacity. And I'm going to say something controversial here. Lucifer, in his angelic intellect, possesses a greater intellect than Jesus's human intellect. Because by nature, angelic intellects are superior to human intellects. Human intellects are analytical. They reason, they come to a conclusion through steps, a process of working out. While angelic intellects are intuitive. They see, they know, they understand, and they consume that new knowledge in one gulp without an analytical reasoning process. Um, so that's not being scandalous here. Uh, Jesus's divine intellect is infinitely greater than any angelic intellect, uh, as well as Lucifer's angelic intellect. So when we talk about Jesus's human intellect, what are the limitations? Well, Jesus in his human intellect has the knowledge of all things past, present and future but not the infinite array of possibilities because that's infinite and the created cannot possess the, in, the infinite. How does Jesus know in his human intellect all things past, present and future and know all that from the moment of his conception in his mother's womb by the Holy Spirit? Firstly, he knows those things through the vision, possessing the beatific vision, he knows those things through infusion, infused knowledge. I mean, Adam and Eve originally were created with infused knowledge, knowledge they didn't learn, knowledge they didn't gain through experience, but knowledge that was placed in them directly by God. Jesus had infused knowledge in his human intellect, infused there by the, by the divine intellect. And he also possessed it what's called experimental or experiential knowledge. Jesus being true man had human senses, external senses, sight, hearing, taste, touch, smell. And through those human senses operating perfectly without any of the wounds of original sin, Jesus gained information from the external world into his imagination images in his imagination and from there his human intellect understood those images conceptualized those images 
And so Jesus gained knowledge of the world around him through experience. But all this knowledge he was gaining through experience, he, he already possessed in his human, human intellect through infusion and through the beatific vision. So that's the knowledge of Jesus. Um, and there's no room here now when we understand this to, to come to any conclusion that he gradually came to a realisation that he was divine. His human intellect had that knowledge and understanding from the moment of his conception because it was from that moment he possessed, his human soul possessed the beatific vision. Absolutely. And the beatific vision transcends, uh, him being God transcends any degree of intellectual growth and realisation that we would have because of his divine nature. I mean, again, there's the common sense there. Uh, but again, with theologians, uh, when your job, I think, sometimes is to, to look into things and dissect things, there is that possibility to really break things up and, and mundle things up instead of stepping back, thinking clearly and breathing clearly. And uh, it can well, definitely, <laughs> definitely happen there. So, George, what we need in addition to intellect, we need humility. And when you've got humility, you, you're willing, you're disposed to embrace church teaching without a critical attitude, but with a loving attitude that consumes church teaching and works to understand it more deeply and explain it more profoundly and defend it more rigorously. It's not about us trying to reinvent the faith uh, for a new generation. I'll put you this question, I'll put you this quote, George, bit of apologetics here on the spot. What about that quote says that Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge before God and man? We find in Luke's gospel. Doesn't that contradict what I'm saying? Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge. How can he grow in wisdom? How can he grow in knowledge? We already possess in his human intellect or the knowledge of all things past, present and future. What does St. Luke mean when he said Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge? before God and men. Let's put you on the spot here, the apologetics on the run. So he grew in all wisdom and knowledge. Are you familiar with the verse? Yeah, I am. I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking about it. I'm just breaking it down. Yeah. I'm trying to compute it here that he grew in all wisdom and knowledge. This is this is that doesn't um, mean it, it doesn't say it, it doesn't specify that he grew over his lifetime. He grew in all wisdom and knowledge, perhaps from his conception. That's how I would see it. Or uh, I, I would look at linguistically breaking it down. What, what is the Koine Greek term for grew in all wisdom and knowledge? Yeah. The, the, the commentators, the Orthodox Catholic commentators tell us that this was simply how Jesus manifested the not wisdom and knowledge he always possessed in stages. Like when Jesus is a toddler, yeah. Yeah. you know, two years old walking around, you know, this, the workshed of St. Joseph, he didn't go around showing that, he, he, he didn't go around showing that he had any extraordinary knowledge more than the average two-year-old. But we do see an instance where Jesus does illustrate that he had extraordinary knowledge well beyond that of a 12-year-old when he goes missing for three days and he's found in the temple. And when Our Lady and St. Joseph find him, what is he doing? He's conversing with the doctors and scribes and the Pharisees there in the temple. And they're amazed at his knowledge and his wisdom and the responses and questions that came forth from out of him. 
So there we see Jesus exhibiting that he was a person who never went to any formal schools, a wisdom and a knowledge well beyond his age. It's just this growing in wisdom and knowledge before God and man is simply the the, uh, the slow process of unraveling more and more publicly what he always possessed. Exactly. And mm. I mean, the same would apply to verses that could be read in such a way, such as 1 Timothy 2.5, uh, God, um, our Lord is, a creator, uh, is the mediator between God and man. I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses take that out of context to think that, oh, look, he's not God. He's mediating between mm. God and man. Mm. I mean, really, the hypostatic union is the perfect uh, way of explaining how he is the mediator between yes. God and man because he is both God and man. Exactly um, right. It, this is another classic example where you read mm. it out of context without the wisdom, knowledge of the church. Again, this is why our Lord never left us with scripture. He never left us with a book. He left mm -hmm. us with 12 apostles uh, uh, who had the power to, as priest, prophet, and king. And the church over time then canonized the Bible in, um, uh, by Pope Damasus I in the fourth century. <laughs> I mean, it's really, he left us with the church, a living, breathing church that can um, uh, function as priests, teach with the authority of christ and act as a king to govern the earthly church i mean that's the beautiful thing about our lord it's not a dead religion it's mm. it's, it's alive just like our lord is alive the church is alive we don't need to just be reading one book and and getting all our answers and then see this is the problem because i, I mean speaking to, uh, to different religions i mean uh some a lot of religions aren't governed by any concept of an authority that's given uh, it, it often gets thrown to scholars in every single generation every single generation and thanks be to god that our faith is not reliant on theologians and scholars studying something we sure, sure the church consults them but the church has apostolic authority to define teaching that is binding that carries the same weight as if our Lord came down and said, but I tell you, mm. church is infallible uh, when speaking on matters of faith and morals and exercising her office under those three conditions. And that's the beauty of it. That's really what kept me in the Catholic faith in the year 2008 to nine. I mean, there was nothing appealing about the idea. I mean, it, it, you look at the, you look at our government. We, we don't have a constitution without legislate, legislators and interpreters and courts you know, systems to apply it practically. I mean, the, the notion that there is a book and we have to read a book and then we all disagree and we all study it and we, we throw our certainty to theologians and scholars as our ultimate infallible way of interpreting and mm. governing a day. It just, and the fact that the church, our Lord left us with this authority of the 12 apostles, the popes and the bishops who can get together and exercise the magisterium. That's what kept me in the Catholic faith. Yeah. It was that clear ecclesiology that kept me in the Catholic faith. I uh, just want to raise another term, uh, flash another term that we need to be concerned about. This, the magisterium of the academy. There's no such thing, but you hear it thrown out there. And it's thrown out there by academics who want to put either an equivalence or even a superiority of the academics, the philosophers and theologians over and above the successors to St. Peter and the apostles. And this is a warning, that a sign that we, we must be aware of. Um, 
And I'm going to throw a couple of other challenges here. If you heard the term, the faith of Jesus, we should have the faith of Jesus. How would you respond? The faith of Jesus, I would see that with respect to his human nature, having mm. faith. So I, I would see that as his human nature uh, in union with his divine, uh, responding in the same mm. way at the cross. Mm. Uh, he, uh, uh, he called her, Abba, Abba, um, what have you forsaken me? So I would look at that as part of his human nature mm. uh, being uh, conditioned by the divine nature intertwined. And you probably give the same answer if I was to say to you, um, the hope of Jesus. We should have the same hope in God that Jesus had in God. How would you respond? I would say the same thing because mm. if it's all part of his human nature, faith, hope, and mm. love, any response to faith mm. and, to his, uh, and to his divinity, hopefully I'm right here, could be wrong. Well, look, it's, it's, it's an admirable attempt and it's not... These aren't questions that are easily answered, uh, but what the church here says following the scholastics about Jesus, it is a heresy to talk about the faith of Jesus. It is a heresy to talk about the hope of Jesus. Jesus had no faith and no hope. And how can I say such a, such a shocking thing? Is because when you die and hopefully go to heaven, what disappears? Faith and hope. St. Paul says there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Why? Because in heaven, faith and hope disappear. Why? Because there's no more room for faith. You're in heaven. You behold the beat of vision. You see God face to face. So faith disappears because you now have vision. Hope disappears because you've now arrived at your destination. You don't have an expectation anymore of seeing God. You don't need to trust in God anymore to see God because you have arrived there. That's why faith and hope disappear. And while the greatest of these is charity or love is because now you're in the, the life of God. You behold the beatific vision. You, you swim in God. Only love remains. My name is Your Father Damon. God, the infinite good. So applying this to Jesus because Jesus in his human soul had the vision of God from the moment of his incarnation. His human soul beheld the beatific vision. The human soul of Jesus saw God and continually saw God. Then Jesus, even in his humanity, could not have faith or hope, but only love. Exactly. And let's now take our break before we open the line here, only through email and through Facebook. Uh, so you can uh, you can comment there or simply email us. That would be much easier to control here. TheCatholicToolbox at gmail.com. That is TheCatholicToolbox at gmail.com. Email us your questions or comments. This is a great topic. We're on fire here. Or simply comment in the Facebook sections here on EWTN Asia Pacific. Uh, send us your questions there. We're live on Facebook. Um, so send us, uh, so email us, that would be preferable. Uh, until we go back into the studio, we'll have the ability for you to call in later. So stay tuned here. We'll be back shortly. My name is Father Damon Seifer. I'm a member of the Priestly Fraternity of St. Peter, which is the Latin Mass Order. Our order has been ministering to the faithful in Western Sydney. Uh, for about 20 years now. 
But we think it's time for us to find our own place, to be able to build our own church. So we're really encouraging people to make donations, perhaps even dedicated to monthly donations so that we can forge to take on perhaps a mortgage for this great endeavor. So we would like to, in the long term, build a traditional church for the celebration of the traditional liturgy in the Latin rite. We would encourage you to think about this, to pray about this, and see if God is calling you to uh, commit to helping us with this great endeavor to build a new church for Western Sydney. And welcome back to another week on the Catholic Toolbox, The Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Manessa, here as we equip you with practical tools to live your Catholic faith in our modern world today as we continue our discussion on whether or not Jesus knew he was God. Let us sink in again. Did Jesus know he was God? We're discussing this here with Dr. Robert Haddad, uh, who's excellently explained this here. We're going to go into some questions, but before then, and but first, for those men wanting to make their rite of passage into manhood, join my exclusive rite of manhood podcast on theriteofmanhood.com. That is theriteofmanhood.com. We'll see you there, gentlemen, to make your rite of passage into manhood. And before we go into our question time, we just want to um, give a big shout out to Dr. Ludwig Ott. There it is. <laughs> so Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma, my favorite theological textbook uh, and book, reference book. It contains every Catholic dogma. Uh, Dr. Ludwig, this should this is probably in the library of every single theologian, um, and at least good theologian. <laughs> and uh, this is this is definitely my favorite. We we're speaking about it before. It contains all the teachings of the dogmatic teachings of the church, and it breaks it down by scripture, uh, the origins, uh, Thomistic teaching. Um, let's say, um, and it goes through Latin, a little bit of the Greek terms. It really explains every dogma, the foundation, scriptural fathers, post-apostolic fathers, early church, doctors of the church. It really goes through every topic. So I highly recommend you get a copy of this here. Now, don't forget, if you haven't gotten a copy of my book, The Art of Practical Catholicism, you can access it now by going onto Google and getting a copy for yourself. That is the art of practical Catholicism. And we've released also re very recently the service toolbox short booklet for servers. So be sure to get that through Perusia Media or by simply Googling the art of practical Catholicism or, um, or the service toolbox. Get a copy of those now. So now we're ready to take your questions. So email us at thecatholictoolbox at gmail.com. That is thecatholictoolbox at gmail.com or in the EW10 Asia Pacific page, put your question in there and we will answer it. And sorry, Dr. Robert Haddad will answer it for you. Uh, if there's anything I can answer, hopefully <laughs> with this discussion, it might be good, but I think we'll let Dr. Robert Haddad um, focus in here today, um, going deep into the theology. Let me start off the questions with our, something, I mean, it's such a great topic to really sink our teeth into and to understand, but what are some three practical tips where we can, where we can worship our Lord, worship the Holy Trinity and, and really see this? How can we take this teaching into our day-to-day -day lives and in our spiritual life? 
because uh, we're always about here on the Catholic Toolbox, finding some practical solutions to what we're discussing. So what are some three practical tips that we can uh, do to take this and, and sort of grow in our faith because of our under, clear understanding of whether or not Jesus knew who was God? Oh, yes, it's, it's a little bit of a hard one. I, I would start by saying we need to reappreciate the creeds. They're practical. They're a part of our faith uh, practice every Mass. And sometimes when we say the creed, we just say it routinely. Uh, we don't have any awareness of the, the story behind its formation, the controversies, the history, how long it took to be finalised. So I would, you know, focus on what it says about Jesus, as I said earlier, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, etc. And also in the divinity of the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. And, you know, get a, try and read some good books, not too difficult, uh, to, on the history of the formation of the, of the creed. I think also of practice here, practically. I mean, I've been focusing a lot, of, a lot about on, on Jesus' God, the divine, okay? And we should. And, but we almost always must keep the balance here. You know, there are people who go speak about the divine and they implicitly perhaps don't refer to the humanity so much. And there are people who focus on the humanity and they might even have an agenda to undermine the divinity. Um, we do, we generally, good faithful Orthodox Catholics focus heavily on the divinity of Christ, and we should, but not forget that he is an exemplar. Jesus, this is the other practical side, he is an exemplar, which means he is the model, the example for us as humans. Uh, he became man, he became one of us to teach us what true humanity is as well, and how we should live practically every day our faith that our faith can't be simply in the theoretical in the discussion as you said in your introduction okay very good introduction our faith is not meant to be just an academic exercise it's a must be hum lived humanly every day and we look we need to focus on jesus's humanity to remind us of that Thirdly, I'm not so sure if I've got yet in my mind a third point here, a practical tool. Um, just be a, realize that this, uh, be more conscious as a faithful Catholic that there are these swirling circles of uh, doubt and confusion out there and that your role as a lay person is not to be just a receiver but to be also a, you know, proclaimer and a teacher. You're baptised, you're confirmed, you're anointed, you have a mission to teach and defend the Catholic faith and not to be intimidated by people who have master's degrees and doctorates and, and think that they are the final say, because uh, they're not. Um, with all these people with such qualifications are also meant to be servants of the truth. And you have a right to the truth and a, a right to proclaim the truth as well. Exactly. We have a question here from Mary who's emailed us here today. And she, uh, Mary asks, how do you think Jesus lived when he was a young boy? 
Would it have been very hard for Mary and Joseph raising a godchild? I wonder how they would have been as a family. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mary, for your question. It's a great question. It is a great question. I would. I can only imagine that they uh, imagine this in the ideal. It was the ideal family. I I would say that you know you can just imagine what the interior life of this family was like on a day to day basis. The prayer, the peace, the gentleness, the reverence, the awe that Jesus Himself showed to St. Joseph as his foster father and to Our Lady as his mother and the unity between St. Joseph and Our Lady and the reverence that they those two had for the Christ child. I think that they did have a realization of who Jesus really was and that would have been, yes, a challenge. But I don't think, I think for all intents and purposes, for the most part, Jesus acted age appropriately. When he was an infant, when he was a baby in the in the manger, he acted like a, a helpless baby. When he was a toddler, he walked around like a toddler who needed to have his nappies changed and to be fed and to be breastfed when he was even younger. Um, and as a young boy growing up in the t- workshop, he would have reverenced his father and was taught how to be a carpenter. Yes, of course, he was a divine person with in- infinite knowledge and he didn't need to be taught but he lived as if he needed to be taught and lived as a faithful child and a reverential child before his parents which would have made the life the lives of our lady in saint joseph easier no doubt as they lived in the presence and the awe of jesus um, who veiled that awe and presence of the of the divinity in, in his humanity so yes i wish we had we have insights into that family. We need the model of the Holy Family more than ever now because isn't our families, aren't families being assaulted relentlessly by the sexual and cultural revolution that just pervades everything today? So, I mean, it's really the way I see it is by understanding that Jesus is fully human, fully divine, we're able to learn from his divine nature. He's united God and man, and that we need to come closer to our Lord to understand how we should live as people. And, and that's the whole purpose of theology. I mean, to, to actually learn the faith, but then to put it into action. I mean, that's the real deal. I mean, mm. that's what we focus here on the Catholic toolbox, finding practical solutions to then taking any theology or any concept, even the, I mean, it's, it's much harder to actually come up with practical ways to live, let's say, th- deep theological ideas, but it can be done. I mean, it can, or it can be used to help you in your spiritual life or living your faith to then aid your salvation. I mean, we're here about getting people to heaven. We're here to get heaven ready, essentially. And, I mean, it's very, very important to, to, to find humility in in we, we may have some knowledge i mean sc- scholars can debate and it, it, it you can become prone to pride essentially uh when, when you do have so much knowledge and it's i think it's important that we we learn humility as you said before but well, pride is a huge problem um for those who might have gone to city university and graduated in the great hall uh 
it's a beautiful edifice and inside it's a the feeling of a cathedral of a church and at the top when you process in if you look up to the ceiling it has a latin quote from saint paul scientia in flat caritavarus edificava which is knowledge inflates it is charity that builds so yeah caritas edificava that's pronounce it correctly and that's that's a warning to all of us and it's a warning that sometimes i think some theologians and philosophers might implicitly forget um you know we're not judged simply on our knowledge we're judged we're judged on our love and the more knowledge we have the more love we're expected to produce so the more we know the more in danger we are in our judgment um so yes you know that's why jesus talks about having the faith like a child and if we're not like a child we can't enter into the kingdom of heaven do you if think we... do you think okay I, i'm trying to look at the underlying problem uh, i think it's clear that jesus is is god he's fully human fully divine but i'm trained to to understand to myself is the underlying problem i mean am i there yeah it's just just fading in and out a little bit the the last line i didn't catch okay so i'm trying to identify the underlying problem could it be perhaps church professionalism whether it's being a theologian or even among the clergy could that be somewhat of a problem sometimes as to why sometimes we get caught up in let's say too much professionalism at the detriment of the faith often when I speak to clergy who may be involved with a lot of, um, let's say, earthly things to do with the church, uh, I, I always like to remind them, let's say, when I, when I write my, uh, you know, I sign a book for them or something, I always remind them that, you know, of, you know, their judgment, the greatest standard of their judgment. You know, I'm a married person, you know, hopefully to my wife and to my future family. Uh, I'll be judged against that standard, you know, as a layman, you'll be judged against your stand, but as a cleric, as a, even as a theologian, I mean, you have a duty to, to educate people and even catechize in a deeper way. I mean, we're all going to be judged. So do you think professionalism in church circles is the problem? Professionalism. Uh, do you intellectual pride in the West? I know that Eastern churches might like to hear that, but have we fall into rationalism? And, mm. and, but let's go into professionalism first. Professionalism, especially in the industry I work in, is essential. Um, I see people who have a strong faith, but they fail and fall because they're not professional. At the same time, I see many, many people who are very professional. And perhaps what they need more is just a simple faith. You need to combine both. It's a merger of both. Um, We need to be people of faith and a humble faith and even a childlike faith but we need to be professional in how we operate and how we work. Um, And that's the way forward in our circles. Um, Yes, I've made jokes about professionalism over the time. And I do see how we do suffer because we just focus so much on professionalism and not necessarily so much on our own confessionalism, on our own faith, if that's 
a comparison. It's like people who might focus so much on the humanity of Christ and neglect the divinity of Christ or vice versa. It's a fine balance we must strike between the two. Excellent. I mean, really, and then have we fallen into too much rationalism in the West intellectually on a theological level that is to the debt? I mean, the Eastern Orthodox definitely and, and, and Eastern Catholic churches definitely like to look at the West and say, ah, it's too much intellectualism there. Uh, isn't it better to not overthink all the time sometimes? Or Yeah, but, sometimes, yeah. It is, it, sometimes we do overthink. Sometimes we do split hairs. Sometimes we do try and calculate how many angels are on the tip of a needle. All right? And this is irrelevant for most people. Okay, I can understand the need for theologians being very acute in their analyses and their language, and absolutely that is necessary. But we need to keep, while our heads are in the clouds, we must remember to keep our feet on the ground. And that theology or philosophy is always a pursuit of the truth to, and in order to better convey the truth to who? Not ourselves, you know, to convey the truth to the people of God, the ordinary faithful, so they can live there, know more, live more, and love more appropriately. That's, uh, I mean, you can't beat that of an answer. I mean, really, so what are your final words to leave us with uh, to really okay, understand Jesus' position and, and his example and how to impact our lives so we can get to heaven and, and see well, that big vision that we're talking about? I, my final words when it comes to Jesus is that we can always theologize and, you know, speculate and, and come to conclusions about, you know, Jesus is a divine person and how many, and his divine nature, the divine nature and his human nature and the divine will and the, and the human will and the knowledges of Christ, et cetera, et cetera. But ultimately, yeah, they're all good, but ultimately let's work to make Jesus our friend be friends with him, a loving friendship. Yes, he's Lord, he's Savior, he's King, he's Master. Um, he's also brother, he's also friend. And but he's also human. Yeah, we be, let's be friends of Jesus. That's the most important thing exactly. um, in a, as the final product built on everything else. Let's not be friends of Jesus and, and deny his divinity or his humanity, or fall into any other heresies. Let's know the theology of Jesus. Let's know the Christology. But in the end, let's know Jesus. Jesus Christ as what? Lord, Savior, King, Master, and Friend, ultimately. That we know, that we love, that, that uh, we are brothers, we are members of, and that and, and in our journey towards the heavenly kingdom. Absolutely well said. And uh, there's nothing more I can say. And I'm sure there's nothing more you can say. I mean, that's the beauty of it. I mean, we can study theology. We can know that. But at the end of the day, what you just said there at the end, that's the ultimate way and the three practical tools to then take action now so you can meet Jesus Christ. Without studying, we, we, we learn and we meet Jesus Christ. That's really uh, the ultimate goal here. So don't forget to subscribe to the Catholic Toolbox podcast wherever you get your podcast. And thank you for tuning in with us, uh, Dr. Rob Haddad. It's a pleasure to have you and definitely have you again. You're welcome. Thank you, George. And keep up the great work, you and your team. God bless you all. Thank you very much. And uh, thank you very much, everybody, for tuning in.
don't forget to follow us on our YouTube channel. We we go we stream live on YouTube for many of those who are asking. Follow us on YouTube. Go to the Catholic Toolbox. Subscribe. Follow us. Share it. Don't forget. And also follow us on Instagram. And don't forget, you can also get your uh, weekly newsletter um, and, and alert to your email so you don't miss an episode there uh, by going to thecatholictoolboxshow.com and subscribe there. And uh, you'll be on our newsletter. You'll be kept up to date with talks, events, everything that's going on uh, with the Catholic Toolbox here. So thank you for tuning in to the Art of Practical Catholicism. I'm your host and founder, George Vanessa. Until next week, God bless Take care and take action. In this era of grave spiritual crisis, it is not enough to simply know about your Catholic faith. That is why we need a Catholic toolbox to equip us with the practical skills necessary to live our Catholic faith to reach our ultimate goal, which is heaven for all eternity. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Join us every Tuesday night at 8pm for the Catholic Toolbox as we hand you the tools to go forth, live the faith and change our modern world today. Live on The Voice of Charity.